So seeing the evidence, seeing the indictment, seeing just the United States versus Donald Trump, there is a force to that just reminds us that we're in unprecedented territory here in this country's history. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Susan Del Percio in for Ron Steslow. This is the Weekly Roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they are shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the Roundup, is Politicology fan favorite, Lene Erickson. Lene is the Senior Vice President for Social Policy, Education, and Politics at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Lene, it's so great that you're here. Thank you. So good to see you. And what folks cannot see on the podcast is I'm very tan because I'm just off a cruise. Ah, so you're like coming back to this week of news a little like it's jarring, isn't it? A little inundated. Also returning to the roundup is Andy Kroll. Andy is an investigative reporter for ProPublica where he covers voting, politics, and threats to democracy. He's the former Washington bureau chief for Rolling Stone magazine and has written for Mother Jones, National Journal, and the California Sunday Magazine. He is also the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich, and The Age of Conspiracy. Well, there's a lot of them out there. Welcome to the show, Andy. Great to be here with you and Lene, as always. Up first this week, we'll discuss Donald Trump's most recent indictment, this time for his role in attempting to subvert the 2020 election and the early national polling numbers showing him even with Joe Biden in the 2024 general election. Then we'll move to break down the Hunter Biden plea agreement and his former business partner's testimony to Congress. Next, we'll discuss the migrant crisis hitting New York City. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll take a look at the changes to California's math education framework and the push for equity in math education and what it could mean more broadly. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head over to politicology.com plus or click the link at the top of today's show notes. On Tuesday, Donald Trump received another federal indictment. We are recording this on Thursday morning, and it should be noted that Donald Trump is scheduled to be arraigned this afternoon. This time, it's a four-count indictment for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election that culminated in the violent riot at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. The indictment details a protracted campaign of lies about the election results and alleges that Trump exploited the insurrection to delay his inevitable defeat. The four counts include conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, the obstruction and the attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against rights. In his announcement of the indictment, Special Counsel Jack Smith called the attack of the Capitol, quote, unprecedented assault on the seat of democracy, close quote. Prosecutors also referred to a half a dozen co-conspirators and their involvement. The indictment made it very clear that Trump, like every American, had the right to speak publicly about the election. He even had the right to lie about it, but 
he was not entitled to subvert it. So with this laid out, since we aren't talking about conspiracy, I'll go to you, Andy. How significant is it that there is a conspiracy to overthrow the election by a former president? And what would go into that and how Trump's followers kind of take that all in? Reading this indictment put me in several states of mind. There was obviously the, not shock, but the sort of um, gravity of seeing this case, United States versus Donald Trump, the former president indicted by the government that he used to lead for effectively trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power, one of the oldest traditions in our democracy. And so there was something that hit you about that. But at the same time, there was also a feeling of not necessarily surprise reading this 40-plus page indictment, in part because so much of the things that appear in that indictment happened in public or were reported on contemporaneously or have been surfaced in either former President Trump's second impeachment trial in the work, the hearings, in the final report of the special January 6th committee, and even in similar court proceedings involving other players in this alleged scheme to, again, prevent the transfer of power, prevent the votes from being counted in 2020, and for Donald Trump to stay in power. So there is a sort of weird dissonance going on here when so much of the stuff in the indictment is is material that we've seen before. There is new material in there, and Special Counsel Jack Smith clearly has put his dozens and dozens of FBI agents and career prosecutors to work building this case. But you could also put your mind back to June of 2022, when in a civil case involving January 6th, you had a federal judge say that Donald Trump and John Eastman, the lawyer, likely committed two crimes around the January 6th insurrection. And so there's this sense of both inevitability here, but also seeing the evidence, seeing the indictment, seeing just the United States versus Donald Trump, there is a force to that um, that, again, just reminds us that we're in unprecedented territory here in this country's history. Yeah, Lene, one thing that really stood out to me is that it appears that Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, who is a candidate running for president, he seems to be like the star witness of the charges brought forward. And yesterday, uh, Pence tried to a little bit go after Trump, but not, he never called him out by name. Does any of this register, do you think, with the Republican electorate when it comes to the primary? Or have they heard everything? And after seeing if they did watch any of last year's congressional hearings, is it all ready baked in, do you think? Like, is this indictment ready? Baked in is exactly the phrase I was going to use. I mean, I think Andy's right. We have all seen the footage in real time of what happened. This was not done under cover of night. It was done on cable news live. So we we all saw it. And I think, um, you know, the, the question of does this change the Republican primary or the, or the views of Republican voters is very clearly no. Um, you know, I think even there, there's a small number of Republican voters who saw 
an insurrection and other illegal activities by Trump and have already broken from him, uh, many of whom are guests on this podcast. (laughs) And then there's the other chunk of Republicans who already know all of this and um, now are being told via the media they consume that this is just a witch hunt. It is, um, you know, it is a distraction from um, Biden's troubles and Hunter Biden. And, um, you know, this is all just political. Um, and so I think those two groups are, are fairly baked in. I did think that, um, Pence's shift this week was interesting because he's certainly tried to kind of toe this line. He's not in the Christie place, right? He's not saying like, this guy's bananas, don't put him back in power. And yet I think that's in his heart of hearts, what he probably thinks, but he hasn't said it that out loud yet. And then this week he did say something to the effect of, um, this man put himself ahead of the constitution and anyone who does that shouldn't be reelected. Um, and I think that's the furthest he's gone to criticize Trump, um, which is pretty mild given that, you know, a major target of this whole insurrection was people saying, hang Mike Pence. So it seems like maybe some stronger words are necessary there. But, um, I thought that John Dickerson, um, who's a fantastic reporter had a great, um, idea here, which is that, um, in the first Republican debate, which I think is in about two weeks, uh, for the primary, that every single person on stage should be asked whether they would have done what Mike Pence did. And, you know, that's a good question. That is a good point. And the other thing I had been saying, you know, while Mike Pence, as you mentioned, went there, he said, no one is above the Constitution and no one should try and do, you know, subvert our elections. He should say, Donald Trump thought he was above our Constitution. He should have just named him instead of saying, you know, I don't know, it's a Baltimore thing if it <laughs> will not be named. But it was certainly disturbing. Um, just to get a little more into the indictment, It laid out the attempt to subvert the election in four parts, trying to deceive state officials to change electoral votes, using fraud and deceit to organize the fraudulent slate of electors, attempting to leverage the DOJ to use deceit to get state officials to replace the legitimate electors with fake electors, and attempting to enlist Mike Pence to fraudulently alter the election results. Now, we all know that all of these attempts, when they were brought to court, Trump lost. But I can't help but think that right now, especially given some of the responses from the Republican candidates, Andy, that in some way our judiciary is also under a microscope with this trial. I mean, from any part of, will there be cameras allowed in the courtroom to one of the most important events in our country's history? to debunking this ridiculous notion that there is some kind of DOJ for Republicans and some kind of DOJ for Democrats, which I think has truly fractured who we are. And lastly, I really wish that we would stop calling judges appointed by whichever president, because I think that has led to a breakdown of what the judiciary is really about. So, Andy, kind of unpack any part of that. I mean, this will be a trial that will play out in federal court here in Washington, D.C. It'll play out at the Prettyman Courthouse, which to sort of visualize this for our listeners is basically spitting distance from the United States Capitol. The the crowd of January 6th marchers, including those who broke through the barricades, some who assaulted cops and then broke into the Capitol, literally walked right past 
this courthouse would have been on their left as they went from the ellipse in front of the White House to the Capitol that day. This courthouse has seen a lot of major, major cases because it is the federal courthouse for our nation's capital, but it will have never seen anything like this. Again, a former president who is also running again for president on trial in front of a jury of his peers, 12 men and women who live in the District of Columbia, where I live. And this is a courthouse that, you know, it, it is not built to be a cable news studio. You cannot bring your phone or your computer into a courtroom. And, you know, I, I go there all the time. I've covered cases there. I covered cases that stemmed from the 2016 election interference um, investigation by the Justice Department. Other things. I mean, I was just there for a hearing in a case involving Rudy Giuliani two or three weeks ago. You know, the the galleries there can fit like 40 people, maybe 50 people tops in some of these courtrooms. And we're talking about a case that will captivate a huge part of the country. And so I have to imagine that the the courts are thinking about how do we even accommodate the kinds of, you know, the media attention, let alone the broader public's attention. And, you know, it's interesting because I also covered cases in, uh, in the Eastern District of Virginia, just across the Potomac River from here. And the court there in EDVA is even more uh, uh, trapped in the past in some ways. You can't even bring your phone or your computer into the courthouse. I had to check my electronics at a bodega across the street, <laughs> wow. along with like three quarters of the wall. Yeah. And like you, you pay, pay them money. They give you like a wrinkled piece of paper. They put it underneath the cash <laughs> register. And like half of the Washington press corps electronic <laughs> equipment was in this bodega. So, you know, this is what we're talking about when we think about like how the courts prepare for these sorts of things. That was for the Manafort trial, which got a ton of attention at the time. So I, I, I got to think they're really trying to figure out how do we, one, give the kind of transparency about this case that it deserves to a public that will be hugely divided about both the facts of the case, the players in the case, the court itself, but how do we do it without it becoming an absolute circus, which very much has the potential to be. And I'm sure the arraignment today will be a circus and that's just the very first step. So it's, you know, it's really important. I think that there is enough transparency in this, that the handful of people out there who are on the fence about this case or on the fence about the justice department's handling of this case and others like it, that they can at least get some insight into how does this case play out? Also, just like how does the judicial process play out for someone like the former president of the United States who's running? You know, people need to see that he will be treated like anyone else would be treated in that courtroom and in front of those jurors. And if they don't figure out a way to help the public see that, I think it will it will be to the detriment of, of the Justice Department here. Well, I think the transparency point is is super good one, but Susan, I think you call into question a, a broader piece, which is, um, you know, how do we think about justice and the judicial system in our society, and how does that overlap or not with the polarization in our politics? You know, the thing I thought of 
of all of the asinine things Trump's lawyers have said back um, to this, this, you know, now third round of <laughs> criminal charges. Um, they said, well, we can't hold the trial in DC, which by the way, is where the crimes were committed, which is why we're holding it here, uh, because uh, too many people voted against Trump in DC. People don't like Trump in DC. So they suggested, let's move the venue to somewhere uh, that is more neutral, they said, like West Virginia. <laughs> okay. First of all, that makes zero sense. Like there, none of these crimes were committed in West Virginia. We don't just go and put it somewhere else because we want to. There's literally like venue is a thing based on where did you commit this crime? But also West Virginia voted for Trump by like 40 points. That's neutral. I don't like, I don't really get that. Um, it has no nexus to the crime. And, um, but it shows you how they're trying to frame this, which is, this is a liberal city. This is an Obama judge. I'm not going to get a fair trial here. It's harder for them to say that in Florida because it's a Trump judge and it's Florida. But, um, but I really think it's, it's very disconcerting because I was thinking this morning, you know, the other piece, uh, of the argument they made was not just, oh, well, 95% of DC voted against Trump, but also that um, people here uh, were, you know, impacted by January 6th. And so we shouldn't have the trial here because he can't get a fair trial. Right. Really? Is that right. what we're saying? That we should hold trials in places that people weren't impacted by the crime? Because, you know, are we saying that the Uvalde shooter or the um, Parkland shooter um, needs to go be tried in West Virginia because the consequences of their crime and the gravity of their crime impacted everyone in that community? No. The jury of your peers is supposed to be in the place where you hurt people. <laughs> and this is where we hurt people. There, there's one other thing just to go back to the the trial judge in this case. Um, she is very well respected on both sides of the aisle. But just if you were going to pick a, just a persona that would get under Trump's skin, a woman of color who's an immigrant, <laughs> I think just her presence in the courtroom will drive Trump just bonkers. And of course, there's no reason that she shouldn't be overseeing this case. But I think that, that potentially they're afraid of what Trump will say about this judge specifically. And I think it's a valid, valid concern. So. And the other thing is, we saw this case unfold with those congressional hearings in many ways. We've seen the evidence, not all of it, and there's going to be a lot more surprises, but the country's aware of it. And as you said earlier, Lene, Trump supporters, it's baked in there. So here's my question. The New York Times and Siena College released their first poll of the season. And yes, it's a national poll. So as we know, you got to take it a little bit with a grain of salt because it's not in, just focused on those battleground states. But it's 43-43. I mean, that is, it, granted, before this indictment, but I think there's a lot of professionals in this business who will say, yeah, this indictment won't change that many minds with it. And we have to see, you know, what will be the factors that Biden will take in? Will he speak to it or not? But the one factor that keeps popping up is this group, No Labels, who is looking to put a potential third-party candidate out there. Now, I should note for our audience that Lene does has supported third-party candidates before. 
when she was in the fifth grade. She was a Ross Perot <laughs> supporter. Yes, it's it's true. So That's does have that streak to her. And <laughs> I found it actually pretty amusing. But what I want to know, Lene, is what does, does it make it more likely hearing those numbers, 43-43, that, th- that a no labels candidate or even a Cornell West candidate or any other third party candidate will mean, you know, bad news for Joe Biden? Yeah, I mean, I think it, that poll told us what we already know, which is, um, you know, people know who Donald Trump is, people know who Joe Biden is, and a substantial portion of the electorate would prefer neither of those humans be the next president. We already know that. Um, but, it, you know, it's even more astounding when that poll, which was taken before this and new set of indictments came down, um, but comes down in the same news cycle, um, when you look at that and say, wait, they're tied? What? What's happening here? One of them is, you know, under felony indictment in multiple different jurisdictions. The other one has passed a bunch of bipartisan things and uh, is doing a, a reportedly pretty good job. Not sure what the disconnect is here. But we do know that there's, you know, about 10% of the electorate that is still hanging out there and saying, you know, my preference is neither. And um, what I, I think is really interesting that the New York Times dug into the crosstabs in these polls and basically said, like, who are these people? And what they said is they are more democratically inclined. They are younger. They are more people of color. Uh, and they are um, folks that through their demographics, you would assume would be more pro-Biden. They also hate Trump and they just kind of don't really like Joe Biden. So I don't think that Donald Trump is going to make a lot of inroads into these folks. Um, but Joe Biden needs them to get over the finish line. And, you know, one of the ways we look at that in the past couple of cycles is we call these folks the double haters, you know, people who say, I don't like either of these candidates. And in 2016, they went for Donald Trump. And in 2020, they went for Joe Biden by over 30 points. And they helped him get across the finish line in key battleground states. And we are going to need them again, because I don't think these folks are going to all of a sudden say, you know what? Actually, I really like Joe Biden now. Like, this is where folks are. Um, And we are going to need the people who decide that he is the lesser of two evils. Um, And that is not going to be possible if there's another option on the candidate where folks can either think that they can actually you know, put somebody else in the White House, that that's a real option, which it is not um, the way our electoral college works. It's never happened before and it's not going to happen this time. Um, But also, even if they think it's just a protest vote and there are enough people out there who would like to have that protest vote just to be seen to say, you know, I don't really like either of these options that would otherwise, if forced to choose, pick Joe Biden. And that could absolutely be the determining factor of putting Trump back in the White House. And I would just like to add, besides needing that turnout of those voters, the other turnout Joe Biden needs, and I worked a lot on this with Lincoln Project, are the Republicans and center-right independents who would not vote for Donald Trump and came out to show not their support for Joe Biden, because they don't like Joe Biden. They didn't like him when they voted for him, and they don't like him today, but they showed up to make a stance and say, I'm putting my country first. I don't know if you get them to the polls again. And that was a sliver that really mattered. And certainly not. What if Larry Hogan is the candidate? He's the one that's talking about it the most, right? Listen, Larry Hogan, 
super legit dude, nice guy, like him. Think he did a perfectly adequate job being governor of Maryland. And he is exactly the kind of guy who can appeal to those folks, right? He's reasonable and, you know, more fiscally conservative and wants to have a conversation about policy. Um, And if, if he gives those folks another place to go, I think Biden loses. Last week, I think the Biden team really thought that Hunter Biden's issues about him being under indictment and DOJ investigation were going to be over. He was putting in the plea deal. It seemed like everything was a go until like the very, very last minute when they were like, "Uh oh, nope, not going to do it. Now, should mention that the plea was basically uh, to misdemeanor tax charges, but The other issue that hung out there was the issue of him having a gun. This agreement would allow that to kind of go by. We heard the Republicans screaming, sweetheart deal, sweetheart deal. But all of a sudden, the judge is like, do you guys know what this means? Turns out, Hunter Biden's team thought they had made their deal going forward, that everything up to this point would be settled. Of course, anything going forward would be a new investigation. Prosecutors didn't see it that way. So the judge sent them back and said, you guys have to work this out. Come back to me in two weeks. But then something else really interesting happened. Hunter Biden's former partner, Devin Archer, testified before the House Oversight Committee. Now, there was a lot of reporting back and forth, what he said, what he didn't say. Will the transcripts come out? And Dan Goldman, congressman from New York, was really out forward on this, saying he basically said, nope, there was no, there's smoke, but there's no fire. Well, as we went to start recording the show, the transcripts are out. And, you know, as we spend time going through them, we'll we'll figure out, you know, what really happened. But I believe that no matter what happened, this case isn't settled. So, Andy, my question is just almost a little procedural here, but the House Oversight Committee isn't allowed to investigate Hunter Biden. They're only allowed to investigate Joe Biden. They're not allowed to investigate private citizens. And that's what they've been digging for. So if what Dan Goldman said was true and that the the key witness, Hunter Biden's business partner said, nope, no, I never heard any discussion between business discussion between Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, even though he said hello on the phone. And let's be clear, that hello was, yeah, I know my son's involved with this company. But how far can the Republicans take this? They will find a way to extend this investigation into what Republican Congressman James Comer, head of the Oversight Committee, calls the quote-unquote Biden crime family, all the way until the 2024 presidential election, without a doubt. I mean, we have seen this playbook before. We saw it in 2015 and 2016 when the focus of Uh, the Oversight Committee for a time, and then a special investigative committee was the attack on a U.S. diplomatic facility in Benghazi, Libya. And really the focus there was former Secretary of State and then presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's role in the Benghazi attack, which uh, multiple Americans were killed. And that, you know, went on all the way into uh, really the, the heat of the presidential election of that year. And I think you're, you're seeing a similar playbook happen here as well. This is, you know, the, the, the Republicans have control of the house. They have subpoena power there. 
this is their tool for trying to expose what they claim is wrongdoing by President Biden when he was Vice President Biden during the Obama years. And they're going to keep using this Hunter Biden uh, story as a way into that. Now, you know, these transcripts that were just released right before we went on the air, we've got excerpts of them. We don't have the whole thing. Um, But what you see Devin Archer, a former business partner of Hunter Biden's, talking about in these excerpts is something that is both uh, familiar and what we've already heard related to Hunter Biden. Um, It's something that is commonplace in Washington, D.C., but is also still troubling. What Devin Archer says is that Hunter Biden's value add to their business was his name or, quote unquote, the brand, the Biden brand. You, you put Hunter Biden on your board. You paid him a significant amount of money because of what his last name was and the contacts and the network and this sort of imprimatur of Washington power. That came with. Andy, let me just interrupt. Is that sort of like taking your last name and putting it on a building and trying to sell co-ops? Is that is that what you mean by brand? <laughs> Those are two very very similar things. Yes, exactly. Sorry. Right. <laughs> Continue. Sorry. <laughs> yes, Hunter Biden just didn't put his name on skyscrapers in you know Doha or wherever. He was putting his name on SEC filings and on corporate registration forms, boards of directors documents. Um, Jobs where he would get a lot of money to basically trade on his name. This is something we already kind of knew, but that doesn't make it any less unseemly. It doesn't make it less icky, to be honest. But it is something that is commonplace in Washington. And this is what the House Oversight Committee is continuing to dig into. Now, according to this testimony that Devin Archer gave under oath, then Vice President Biden attended several dinners with Hunter and some of his business associates. Hunter had a habit of putting his dad on speakerphone to say hello in business settings. That also has the whiff of unseemliness. It is not, however, Joe Biden, then Vice President Biden, making things happen for Ukrainian business officials, You know, clearing, clearing up channels, knocking down roadblocks to make sure that Hunter uh, you know, got what he wanted, what his business partners got what he wanted. The House Oversight Committee is sort of claiming that, you know, beneath some of that smoke, there really is a fire, but they have not found that fire yet, despite all of their digging. So, Lene, people may find this distasteful. I find it distasteful. I also find it distasteful that people paid six figure for Hunter Biden artwork. I mean, that's really distasteful, especially given the quality of the art. But... Going back to what you said even just 20 minutes ago, there's a lot baked in. Hunter Biden seems to be baked in. So politically, if this is the best the Republicans have and they plan on driving this home for another 15 months, does that get the job done? I mean, I think absolutely not. I think, you know, there's a reason that 
um, that it, this is happening in the House Oversight Committee in the House, where um, Kevin McCarthy is being driven by the most extremes of his party to do whatever they say, right? Because Lauren Boebert goes down to the floor, um, and uh, despite the fact that she didn't talk to leadership about it, files an impeachment you know, vote against Joe Biden based on literally nothing. Um, he has these people he has to deal with. And so that's the people that this House Oversight Committee are talking to. They're talking to Lauren Boebert <laughs> and, and her friends. Um, and that's fine. Sure. Great. Happy, happy to see it. That's fine. Um, but well, could it backfire? I, here's the thing. I think that mostly in politics, um, the criticisms and the attacks that land um, already, they land on something that voters basically already think about someone right? It's confirmation bias. Um, So for example, if you are saying that Bill and Hillary Clinton did something that seemed like maybe they thought they were above the rules, that landed because people actually thought that was true of the Clintons. Whether or not, you know, anything they ever did was illegal or morally wrong, uh, people had a sense that these are folks that really seem to try to think that there's a different set of rules that apply to them. And that was baked in too. And so when you go after Hillary around, you know, doing something that seems to be against the rules or making up her own rules, that it it attaches to that preconceived notion. I think that the Republicans have already tried this playbook, obviously in 2020 and again in 2022. They've been talking about this the whole time and it didn't attach. And you know why? Because people have concerns about Joe Biden, but it's not about that. They have concerns that Joe Biden might be too old, might not be with it enough, um, that He's being, you know, um, he's kowtowing to the extremes in his own party. I hear lots of people have lots of concerns about Joe Biden. It's not that he's a sleazebag that makes up his own rules. It's that just doesn't attach. And so I I think they're barking up the wrong tree here. And it's because they're only listening to their own base. Um, and that's fine. I don't know that it, the way in which it would backfire is that they're not talking about things that persuadable voters care about at all. That's the way in which it would backfire. Listen, if they're down at the border talking about the fact that, you know, more people arrived this month, um, 150% more people arrived this month to try to get asylum than did last month, I think that would be way more effective. So they're leaving some attacks on the table. That's how it backfires. But mostly they're just talking to the Lauren Boberts of the world and they seem content with that. It's interesting that you bring up immigration. Um, in our next segment, we will be talking about the migrant crisis, but in New York City. When we think of a migrant crisis, we tend to think of the southern border, maybe Florida. But right now, New York City is having its own migrant crisis. Last week, a heat wave blanketed the East Coast. Asylum seekers stood in line around the block outside the iconic Roosevelt Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. This is becoming a very, very big deal in New York City. Mayor Eric Adams has said everything is on the table. We may have to move to putting tents into Central Park. But more importantly, he has been begging President Joe Biden to provide more financial support. New York City has seen over 90,000 migrants in the last several months, 50,000 that they are currently housing. The Roosevelt Hotel is currently functioning as both an arrival center 
and a humanitarian relief center that houses families with children. Now, that humanitarian center is filled. So the people outside of the hotel are waiting for places, other places, potentially outside the city or even in upstate New York. So what's a mayor to do when cameras are everywhere? This is now getting national attention. Mayor Adams is just completely ready to to break down and, and go take drastic actions. So, Andy, what do you think of this? I think there's a lot of different issues colliding almost in the frame of that photo of newly arrived migrants waiting out on the sidewalk in the heat, trying to basically get processed, land on their feet, and then ideally disperse somewhere in the greater New York area and and find work and, and, and start building a life. I mean, there is obviously an influx of people at the southern border who are trying to get into this country for a variety of reasons, uh, fleeing their home countries or where they last lived to, to get here. Um, and we are not properly equipped in a place like New York City, clearly, but also in places along the southern border to process these people coming in, understand why they're coming here, understand what uh, protections or what status they have available to them here in our country, and then try to get them integrated into American society, the American economy. Um, I mean, I think Mayor Adams is trying to use the visuals, which he clearly thinks reflect poorly on his tenure as mayor and, you know, potentially imperil his chances to run for re-election, which by all indication he seems to want to do, and is trying to, you know, raise a ruckus about this, calling toward President Biden, working with the governor. I mean, the interesting thing is, the New York Times has done some great reporting on this that I was reading this morning, is that there are um, tens of thousands of job openings across the greater New York area in nursing, in bar and restaurant workers, home health aid, the construction industry. Agriculture. That could be filled. Agriculture, exactly. That could be filled by new immigrants to this country. And frankly, that is how so much of the history of this country has worked. It just seems like there is both an immense amount of pressure coming from the southern border and then these bottlenecks in places where people who have come into the country are landing and trying to establish themselves, bottlenecks in terms of housing them, uh, legal assistance, you know, navigating the immigration system, and then getting them into the economy. So maybe Mayor Adams is right in calling on President Biden. It's probably not Joe Biden who's going to directly address what's happening, say, in New York City. But perhaps this is a moment where you need the federal government, the state government, and the cities working together to try to streamline this process. Because clearly right now, it's not working in a way that helps basically anyone involved. Yeah. In fact, uh, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, has, it's been reported, is in constant contact with the White House and federal uh, agencies. To her, her goal, to your point, is to get the, the requirement down to 90 days in country to be able to work. Currently, it takes 180 days to get your permit just by, by law. So she says she's looking for 90 days. And it's amazing because when you do speak to some of the migrants out there, especially around the Roosevelt Hotel, 
They want to go work. That's what people want to do. That's why they came to this country. They came to this country because they want an opportunity. And I'm just wondering, though, with those kind of visuals, Lene, is New York City immigration going to be a national election issue? I mean, I think, you know, first of all, just to to back up a minute, the reason we have this problem is not Joe Biden. It's the Republicans in Congress who have refused for years to address our broken immigration system because they want to create this chaos. They think it does create a national issue that they can run on. um, And it adds to this um, dynamic, whether it's around crime um, or immigration or other homelessness, other issues um, where they can point to blue cities and say, look, Democrats create chaos. They don't know how to govern. um, And, you know, they have people people um, unseemly, unseemly living on their streets. Uh, they have people living on their streets. And people don't like that. They don't want to have to step over people when they're trying to get to wherever they're going. And the the people that are living on the streets don't like that either. So um, in the way that it adds to this broader narrative that Democrats create chaos and don't know how to govern blue cities, I think it's very bad. Um, And I think that's why Eric Adams is doing what he's doing. He's trying to distance himself as a different kind of Democrat on some of these issues. That's how he won his primary. That's how he won, um, you know, his role in the first place. And it's what he's going to run on again. Um, So he, whether it's on crime or homelessness or um, now this migrant crisis, he's trying to show, well, I'm a Democrat that does want to take care of these issues. Um, I'm the person that is going to create order in the city, um, even if he's not really delivering on that. Um, so I, I think it's it's not great. Um, you know, Eric Adams uh, doesn't have to run for re-election for a while. And in highlighting the chaos, um, maybe contributing to the idea that Democrats, not him, but other Democrats don't care about these issues. So that's not useful. Um but I think in general, there has been um, across the country a lot of concern around, um, you know, around kind of quality of life in not just big cities, but in lots of cities and suburbs and um, neighborhoods around the country. Um, and we did focus groups post 2022 election um, with lots of different kinds of people. Um, and the only thing that kind of held them together was people saying, I'm worried about these you know, kind of issues of quality of life in my neighborhood. I'm worried about crime. It seems like I'm seeing more drugs on the street. It seems like, you know, there's there's just some things that are happening in my community that make me feel unsafe. And so I think this is kind of adding more fuel to that fire. Um, but, you know, even though the Biden administration didn't create this problem, uh, they could help solve it by expediting those work authorizations. And I think you're exactly right that, um, you know, this is not people who are asking us to take care of them. This is people who are saying, I can take care of myself if you just let me. And there are employers across the city and the and the local region that are saying, great, because I need these workers. Um, so it, they are coming here to do a job that we need them to do. And we're barring them from being able to do that right now. So just as, you know, the Biden administration has claimed great 
emergency authorization authority to do lots of things like blanket cancel student loans, why don't they blanket authorize these folks to work and do these jobs? Because it solves your political problem, solves the substantive problem, um, and it's just as legally defensible, if not more so, than a lot of the other stuff that they've done via executive fiat. But isn't there isn't there some responsibility that is not federal when it comes to how these people are waiting online, it seems like it could almost be a stunt because there's lots of space to put these migrants as they're for their intake center. They could be sitting in an air-conditioned arena. They could be given tickets or bracelets or something. The fact that they kept their, them on the street for days upon days, and they're afraid to even use the bathroom because it could be their turn. Because once you once you're up, you're on a bus and you, you could be going anywhere. And there, people are very afraid of losing that opportunity. It seems to me that perhaps Mayor Adams wanted to use this as a bit of a PR stunt. But if he did, it shows his incompetence, frankly, on how to handle this type of situation. And just real quickly, Andy, I saw you, you nodding your head quite a bit on what uh, Lene was saying. Is this a national issue? Is it a local issue? And who should be held accountable? I mean, that's the maddening complexity of the issue of immigration in this country is that it is a local issue and it is a state issue and it is a federal issue. And there are things that can be done at each of those levels to make the process smoother safer, better for every level uh, of government in this country. And, you know, I think you have at the local level in New York, Mayor Adams, I mean, it's New York City. Presumably, there are places that the New York City government could use to better house these people as they wait to be you know, brought in through the legal system, processed, and then put out into the greater New York area or wherever else to hopefully find work. And it, you know, it would not be the first time that a big city mayor was, you know, using a sort of media spectacle to kind of spark outrage, to get something, to get the attention of politicians up and down the chain to make something happen. I mean, it does feel a little bit exploitative given what these people have already gone through to get to where they are sitting in the sun outside of the Roosevelt hotel. Um, and you know, the Republican side as Lene points out so well, I mean, they, they love this kind of thing and have for a long time stood in the way of changes to prevent these kinds of things, because then they can say, this is what life is like in blue States, blue cities. This is Joe Biden's America, you know, painting it as this sort of dystopian hellscape. And then, using that as a wedge issue and frankly using it fairly effectively um, because it has continued to come up year after year after year. You have Texas governor Greg Abbott putting like barriers in the Rio Grande and you know, you have all these governors mobilizing national guard. I mean, this is a, an issue that galvanizes the Republican party. And at the same time, the democratic party is kind of all over the place in terms of what to do, certainly between the city, the state, and the national, and not using executive authority, as Lenny pointed out, that they could. So, um, 
you know, it, it's the most, one of the most intractable issues we have. And at the end of the day, it is you know, the lives of these people who have undergone an unbelievable arduous journey, in some cases, put their lives at risk, risk the lives of their children, just to try to have a better life, to have a job. And, and at the same time, we need these people. So, you know, you really hope that even if Mayor Adams has some underlying uh, political motivations here, that what he's doing might also spur some action because surely New York City can figure this one out. And in the end, it would seem to benefit just about all of us to find some quick resolution to this. Absolutely. No question about it. Well, thank you, guys. And now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, I mean, President Trump, Hunter Biden, migrants in New York City, let's talk about what you're watching going forward. Lene, what's your look ahead? So I think this will be a personally relevant one for a lot of our listeners knowing uh, who subscribes to this podcast, Um, but it's also going to be a big political issue. Um, We have not had anyone paying their student loans for the last about three and a half years. And we are now going to start the student loan payment machine again, um, just after Labor Day. The first uh, first student loan payments will be due uh, at the beginning of October. Um, and we are up for a huge, huge logistical battle here. We have loan servicers across the country who have laid people off, are not funded to um, staff their call centers because nobody's been making payments for three and a half years. We have people who have just graduated or people who Uh, whose servicers have changed, who don't know where to even send a payment. Um, And we have 100% of the 45 million student loan borrowers um, who are going to have to make a change right now from not paying to paying their loans back. Um, and the most, you know, when you talk to the folks who have to deal with this administratively, the most um, uptick you usually get is maybe 5% of the student loan portfolio, maybe around tax time needs to talk to their loan servicer. And now we have 100%. And we are less staffed than ever to deal with that. Um, so I am very concerned um, that folks are not a, ready to make these payments and start again, um, B, talking to these servicers. Um, the Department of Education has not yet told the servicers that they can contact borrowers and tell them what's to come. And they need to do that now. Um, and uh, and C, I think we are not sufficiently funding um, the FSA um, the, who collects these loans and deals with these servicers and it has the whole back end of our student loan system um, to actually be able to do this in any kind of a reasonable way. So I'm very concerned that if we don't start to um, make sure that we're funding the people who are supposed to start up this student loan machine again, um, that we're essentially going to see um, you know, the rollout of healthcare.gov times a billion, right? Okay. <laughs> and just That's massive, massive care. and frustration um, of people who can't get in touch with their servicers, of people who don't know where they're supposed to send their payment, of people who are going to be dinged on their credit report because they aren't sending in a payment because they don't know where to send it. And I really think listeners need to get ahead of this, figure out, you know, what is this going to mean for you personally? And then please, please tell people 
including the folks who are advocating for broader student debt cancellation, that they also need to focus on this. Because even if um, a next Biden um, action around student loan cancellation does cancel some more student debt, there will still be borrowers with debt. And a lot of the groups on the left have focused entirely on cancellation and have actually said pretty publicly, I'm not going to help people get back into repayment. I'm not going to help people, I'm not going to help the administration start this machine up again. And I'm not going to help my uh, folks that I talk to, my grassroots, figure out how to get into a payment plan that might be their income-based repayment so that they have the lower payment. Because what I want is really to cancel all student debt. So it seems, (laughs) yeah, I was going to say, so it seems like government need, the look ahead is to see if government is going to be ready for this. And Clearly, it, and they're not right now. And I and we need people to to focus on even people who really really want to push for debt cancellation. Please also push to make this work because you know what happens if our entire federal loan system falls away. The private market is the only thing to step in here to fund higher education, and that is not going to be better. That's a great point. So please focus on it for your own finances, but also in the broader point that we have to get this system up and running again, or else we're just going to say the private market is the only people that are going to be able to help students fund higher education. And that has been a disaster in the past. All right. Well, that's something certainly to look towards and pay close attention to. Andy, what's your look ahead? Yeah, this is a a story that I've been following for a couple of years, um, but might have some more uh, resolution, at least some interesting updates in, in the coming weeks. Um, it's this sort of novel legal strategy brought by, largely by an organization called Our Children's Trust. It's these environmental lawsuits brought by young people, in this case, against um, both at, at the state level and at the federal level, but in particular, sort of the quickest moving one has been playing out in Montana, essentially saying that the state had violated their constitutional rights because the state constitution includes language about a clean and healthy environment for the people of Montana to live in. And these young people sued Montana saying that the state did not act accordingly by protecting the environment, by, you know, trying to address uh, fossil fuels, greenhouse gas emissions, and that these Young people had suffered damages as a part of that. This is a novel legal strategy that had not really been tried until the last couple of years and sort of pioneered by groups like our Children's Trust. Um, the case in Montana went to trial in June, and we are waiting to learn more about how that's going to resolve and you know whether there will be appeals at the same time that there are other cases underway in different other states and also at the federal level. If these young people are successful in Montana, it opens the doors potentially to other kinds of litigation in different states, maybe at the, again, more at the federal level as well. And, you know, it's a, it's a story that's been sort of bubbling, at, you know, almost on a low simmer in the background, but I think you're going to start to hear our, our listeners will start to hear more about these suits brought by young people saying essentially, you know, our elected officials have not done what's necessary to ensure, you know, a safe, habitable planet for us in the future. And, you know, I'm really curious to see what judges think of these cases and how they play out. That's really interesting. All right. So mine is not as in-depth, nor have I been following it for years, but I have been following it for months. 
and that is Fulton County. And who will be indicted this month? Uh, my guess is it'll happen within the next couple of weeks. And on my last politicology uh, look ahead, I said, I'm looking to see who's not indicted. I'm going to move a little deeper now and say, I do not think we'll see Rudy Giuliani indicted. I am feeling more and more every day that he has made a deal. And the reasons behind it, he did the settlement on the, on the admitting false claims to the defamation lawsuit to the two election workers in Georgia. And Donald Trump raised, spent about $20 million on lawyers. And you know who he still hasn't paid? Rudy Giuliani. So <laughs> if you're Rudy Giuliani, you got to be wondering, well... I'm kind of left out here to dry. Now, he was a little, he spoke very little about the indictment um, against Donald Trump and that he was uh, a co-conspirator. But I just have this feeling, look for Giuliani's name not to be on the indictment in Fulton County. So that's my look ahead. All right, before we switch over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about the role of public education, where can everybody find you on the internet? Andy? Still sort of a little bit on Twitter slash X at Andy Kroll, but definitely uh, put ProPublica.org on your bookmark list or on your phone or wherever people read things. And Linnea? You can subscribe to all of our political work at thirdway.org. And I am still on Twitter and I can't get used to calling it X, but it's Del Percy OS. So there you have it. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.